0: Welcome to Movie Heaven, Movie
1: Hell with me, Simon Aiken, and... And I'm Keith Isles and we are both independent filmmakers who enjoy discussing movies and related entertainment. And for this podcast special episode, we are really pleased to be joined by filmmaker John Walsh. So welcome to the podcast, John. Hi, guys. Good to be here. Very good to have you on. Um... Before we dig into our main topic, for the benefit of our listeners out there, John, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please?
2: Well, I'm I'm in this capacity. I'm a trustee of the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation, but I'm independently a filmmaker myself as well. Um, when I was um, when I was very young, actually, when I was 18, I enrolled at the London Film School, which was a post-grad course at the time, and I think still is. Um, Did a couple of years learning techniques in directing documentaries and dramas, left and started working straight away as a director at the tender age of 20, and I looked like I was 12, Um, (laughs) and have, have basically run my own indie company now for a few years making documentaries and dramas and uh, a couple of films uh, for the cinema as well, a documentary feature and a and a drama feature as well. So um, wow. it got, yeah, and all that got me in touch with Ray Harryhausen when I made a student film with him back in the day and uh, stayed in touch with Ray and became part of the incredible um, Foundation Archive.
1: That's, that's amazing. Now, I mean, uh, as you've already stated, yes, um, y- you know, on Movie Heaven, Movie Hell, uh, when you look back at a lot of the, Uh, directors that we've already talked about. We've talked about Tim Burton, James Cameron, John Landis, Steven Spielberg, Terry Gilliam, and most recently, Peter Jackson, um, all of which have been absolutely inspired by the special and visual effects work of, of Ray Harryhausen. Um, you and I, we, we met at a recent uh, screening of the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, um, which uh, was actually written by Brian Clemens, uh, and we were invited by, um, you know, Sam and George Clemens, who we've had on the podcast before. So uh, it just seemed, as, as we were going to be talking about Peter Jackson in our last uh, podcast, it just seemed like a really good time to get you on board um, so that we can chat you know, all things Ray Harryhausen, really. (laughs) Well, it's a perfect fit. And, you know, for
2: lots of people who maybe come to screenings and are not sure of the name Ray Harryhausen, they certainly know the films. You know, they'll know Jason the Argonauts. And and even for people who are quite young, they'll certainly recognise this quote. When Ray left us in 2013, George Lucas said there would likely have been no Star Wars without Ray Harryhausen. So I doubt you know amongst all your listeners they will all have heard of star wars and have their their very specific favorites and so on um so he really is somebody who is pivotal in terms of special effects yes but also that particular genre of monster movie that um only existed with ray parryhausen so if you think now if if you guys if the three of us if you me and you know, Simon, Keith and John decided to make a superhero movie, and someone gave us £100 million from the lottery. There's a myriad of special effects places we could go to in all sorts of places around the world, all using similar software, so everything would have a similar look and feel. Back in the day, if you wanted monsters that were realistic in a stop-motion setting, it was really Ray Harryhausen you go to, and if he didn't do it, you were, you were a little bit stuck.
1: Wow, I I just want to make this film with you, me, and Simon, and a superhero (laughs) film with a, you know, $100 million budget or whatever. That sounds amazing. Let's do it. Um, Yeah, from the lottery as well. Indeed, indeed. No, but I mean, Star Wars it gets mentioned a few times on our podcast so uh Ooh. i think our listeners are, are, are you know quite familiar and and know that they're the sort of films that we as film geeks and and film fans ourselves uh y- you know like and i mean obviously you know ray ray um harryhausen has inspired the likes of you know phil Tippett, stan winston nick park you know all these sort of filmmakers that 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 we've grown up with as well so um, and, I've, and I guess you know winding the clock right back I mean we, we talked about uh, on the Peter Jackson podcast we talked about King Kong in some depth and obviously Willis O'Brien there um, you know in the 1920s you know did the, the Lost World and then in the 1933 did King Kong and this was kind of what inspired Ray Harryhausen to get into this and become his apprentice then in the 40s yeah with with Mighty Joe Young have I, have I got that correct?
2: Yes you have I mean Ray, Ray was a, a young puppeteer and animator himself anyway and he was working on George Powell's puppetoons, um, which were sort of fairy tale stories um, but yeah the first feature film he worked on in, in 1949 was RKO's um, Mighty Joe and, you know, it looks marvellous today. There's been a recent Blu-ray uh, release by Warner Brothers who own the RKO library, and it looks splendid. And uh, I, I sat down with John Landis and Ray um, in 2012 to record a commentary for the film um, because uh, it's, it's, it was a favourite of John's because John's a big gorilla fan. And it was marvellous <laughs> to, to sit down with them both and be there whilst they did their, their commentary. So it was, um, it was fabulous.
0: Mm-hmm. I have to ask, having been in the room with John Landis, uh, knowing how animated he can be, uh, how was he doing the, uh, the director's commentary on that? He was
2: great. I mean, the, the great thing about uh, John Landis is that he has so many stories of old Hollywood from a young person's perspective. So John was very much the new young buck in the 70s making his films like Animal House and so on. So he very much saw the decline of old Hollywood so when you go into the commissary at RKO, and when you'd see people sat around, whether it was uh, you know John Ford or, or other sort of luminaries, um, you know, there's a unique take from a young person's point of view about these old Hollywood greats. And of course, you know, Mighty Joe Young is not without his controversies. Um, at the time, it, it sunk stop motion animation um, because um, Howard Hughes owned the studio, and the front office wanted to pile a lot of debts onto the next film coming down the track, and that was My Joe. So to show um, losses in one spot, effectively, which is an accounting um, sort of trick, uh, you pile all your, your losses onto one particular film coming down the track, and it happened to be My Joe Young. So people had the perception of, oh, these, these films with trick photography must be particularly complicated and a big risk. So we won't go near them. So it kind of s- slowed things down almost to a stop for Willis O'Brien, who worked very infrequently after that. And I think it told, it told Rayo, it taught him a, a solitary lesson that, uh, you know, if you make these pictures, you have to make them efficiently.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: Absolutely. Um, no, I mean, you know, it's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, this sort of harkens back to, you know, pretty early in the, in the era of cinema. Um, indeed you know and uh, um, I guess when you look at the work he's done it, it sort of sort of falls into you know there are creature films that there, there are sci-fi films you know with flying saucers and stuff and then there's like the Greek mythology films and of course the Sinbad films. so he's, he's got these he kind of went in sort of different waves with this and tried different things. It's it's it very much looks like he was constantly sort of experimenting with new stuff and trying to redefine what he was doing.
2: Oh definitely, you know, and for every as as we mentioned that the 45th anniversary screening of Golden Voyager Sinbad, uh for every Sinbad and Jason there were films that didn't get made. And and in the Foundation's archive we're finding things all the time, you know, from the uh, the follow-up to Clash of the Titans which is called Force of the Trojans, um, to other Sinbad adventures, um, Dante's Inferno, his version of War of the Worlds. Uh, There there are lots of very exciting projects that have gone thus far unmade. So when you look at Ray's filmography and you see the reoccurrence of Greek mythology or Sinbad and so on, it often hasn't been a design. They will wait to see if a film does well if it doesn't, they'll switch back to um, a, a, a particular place in history that has more commercial resonance with an audience. So, for example, the f- well, do you, do you know Simon and Keith which of Ray's films financially didn't didn't hit the spot?
0: Um, Hazard a guess. Was it Clash of the Titans?
2: How dare you, sir? <laughs> I don't know.
0: I'm just guessing.
2: Okay, I'll, I'll pick you up on that in a minute. And um, um, oh, what do you think, think <laughs> uh, Keith? Did you, did you is the one that you think maybe didn't didn't hit the spots?
1: Um, well, if I mean, I I, yeah. I kind of would have gone with the same assignment, I think, and said Clash of the Titans. And the only reason I say that is because, um, obviously, you know, we only lost Ray what two or three years ago or whatever it was but um mm. y- you know to my knowledge 1981 when C- clash of the titans came out uh kind of he he didn't make or correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think he made any films after that right that was kind of the end of of, of what had been a amazing career spanning back to the you know the 50s but did he make any films beyond that I- i'm not no, he sure he didn't.
2: No okay. it didn't. but the, the interesting the interesting point and it's it's a fair point you make because it's his last film you You might assume that therefore something went wrong. um it had the biggest budgets of any of his previous films. It had more monsters and or creatures than the last four films combined um and it was the biggest box office success that they'd ah. ever ever had, and the residuals right. that still okay. come through for that film are phenomenal for both Ray's State and Charles Schneers. So actually, ironically, it was it was a um, it was one of those moments where things were just set alight by what they'd done. Uh, but the story of what happened next is um, you know is it's problematic. It really is. And and it's such a shame because at that level of budget there was much more scrutiny on the film. So the reviews at the time were quite unkind. Um, very unkind, in fact. So if you'd got Starburst or Starlog magazine and had a thumb through, or even Radio Times, it would have been, you know, unkind. Let's, let's put the let's put the uh, you know the the uh, the cat amongst the pigeons. It was very unkind. Now, of course, you look back, and the same reviews have been retrospectively uh, gold-plated, and people think of them as wonderful films but no Mm -hmm. clash was the one that was the absolute cash cow for everyone concerned it was fabulously successful and it was in terms of its placing um 11th in the american box office for the year but made more money in europe than raiders of the lost ark
1: good lord okay same because same (laughs) year absolutely i mean i mean uh i remember I didn't see Clash of the Titans until it uh I guess until it came on television. Um, but I remember when I was a kid being absolutely terrified by the Medusa creature. I mean you you know really was. I found that very scary. <laughs> uh, uh, but w- what an amazing piece of work when you think that um you, you know each one of those uh, snakes on the uh, on the head you know moved and just the painstaking work that uh that must have gone into that is you know sort of blows my mind really when I try and think about it but um you you know growing up definitely uh you know Jason and the Argonauts you know the Sinbad movies as we've already mentioned you know all of those sort of things were uh, were, were were definitely my kind of films you know uh, fancy sci-fi anything like that I I enjoyed and um, you you know a lot of the as I said a lot of the filmmakers that Simon and I have talked about that have been filmmakers that have been inspirational to us um, you know nearly all of them cite uh, Ray Harryhausen as being inspirational to them so you you, you know that the the man definitely left his mark.
2: Mm. (laughs) Oh no he certainly did I mean in terms of films that weren't Particularly successful. Uh, the value of Guanji because uh, the distribution by Warner's Seven Arts at the time they hadn't handled a, a dinosaur cowboy film before. I don't think many people had. Um, so it didn't really get the advertising it should have done. And surprisingly, First Men on the Moon, um, First Men in the Moon, it, 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 it underperformed compared to the other Columbia output that Ray and Charles had made. So it's surprising that those two kind of set the path for what wouldn't follow next. So there, right. there wasn't to be any more dinosaurs after Valley of Gwangi. Um There wasn't to be any more science fiction after First Men in the Moon. So the, if you like, the doors are shut and locked to you if a film is a failure because you, you will not get a second chance to make the same mistake again. Um, but interestingly, One Million Years BC is the most successful Hammer film of the entire Hammer catalogue, and yet it's not a vampire movie or aware of the film so on oh. so it's um, there are there are interesting sort of trivia pub quiz moments in uh, <laughs> a lot of Ray's uh, back catalogue but not one by design you know I think that's the point I was trying to make that the films happened due to the deals they could strike and what the studios demanded Golden Voyage of Sinbad was a phenomenal success in 73 so Columbia said Sinbad again And that was meant to be their final Sinbad film. They had no intention of going again with another Sinbad. So the next film, Eye of the Tiger, was kind of... Even though it was 77 when it came out, it was sort of rushed and put together with the people that were available rather than the best people, perhaps, who they would have preferred to work with, (laughs) putting it diplomatically. So... It tends to be one of the least favourites, if you ask people their three favourite Sinbad. Eye of the Tiger sadly comes in third.
1: Right.
0: Saying that, I still quite enjoyed Eye of the Tiger. I remember seeing that on on Saturday mornings as a kid. Yeah, no, it's definitely, yeah, it is one of those Saturday mornings, Bank
2: Holiday Monday, you know, uh, Christmas Bank Holiday films, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, I remember remember the advertising around it because... um, You know, at the time, obviously, you know, Star Wars Weekly and whatever was was coming out. And I remember there was always uh, ads on the back for, you know, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) you know, very early memories there. But, uh, yeah, I remember all of that stuff for sure. So uh, I have to admit, um, one million years BC, uh, you know, which, I, again, I remember that as a kid, but I find um, as an adult, uh, <laughs> I'm always rather distracted by something else when I watch that film nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a funny thing, you know, we think, we think of the film as, uh, as you know, as, as, a,
2: as a bit of, maybe a bit of a children's film or something, but... We worked with Studio Canal to help them put together the new Blu-ray, which has the longest version cut of the film, including the sort of the black and white uh, earthquake at the end. Um, It's incredibly violent. I mean, there are some really sort of 15-rated violence in there where people are having their heads knocked against (laughs) rocks. And it's really brutal, some brutal murders. Um, But uh, Ray tells a story that working with Raquel Welsh, uh, she would constantly take a small pair of nail clippers to her bikini to make it smaller and smaller because she wants to appear more and more seductive oh my god <laughs> but, but she didn't realize that films were shot out of continuity i mean you guys know this uh, keith because you, you make okay. films as well so of course uh, at different points in the film her bikini is different different lengths um the fur because it's been trimmed um which is quite a bizarre set of behaviors from from Raquel Welch but um yes
1: like I said very distracting very distracting <laughs> yes <laughs> but um interesting though that that's so, so that's Hammer's most successful film
2: yep financially their most wow. biggest box office success
1: good lord who would have known there you go <laughs> fair enough well I mean let to to get into this a bit more Um, can you tell us you know what was I mean obviously we know that you contacted Ray Harryhausen etc but winding the clock right the way back I mean what was your personal journey in terms of discovering Ray's films and you know your favourites and growing up with them and what prompted you to you know then want to contact him and, and stuff like that can you talk us through that a little bit
2: yeah sure well I was always happy to go to see anything at the cinema. I was a real kind of cinema buff, even as a kid. Um, My mum would always scour the papers. So for half term, there would always be a Disney re-release, which is fine. You know, I mean, I'm not a massive fan of cats and dogs having a sing-song around the piano. But if that's the only thing on (laughs) offer, you're not going to say no. But when things came along like Sinbad that were the appropriate um, A certificates, you know, or U certificate as they they used to be back then, um, then... You know i was enthralled by the monsters and i was um i was fascinated by how they actually created such large creatures and how the special effects were achieved and i had a a basic knowledge of, of animation i knew how the disney films worked with cell animation but there was very little information around at the time you know with magazines and even ray himself would rarely give full interviews to magazines about special effects so for me a touchstone moment was i think golden voyage of sinbad and then eye of the tiger and clash of the titans when I got my own Super 8 camera, when I was in, still in uh, secondary school, I started doing my own claymations and different time lapse photographies. And, but I was, I was fascinated by the whole world of, of stop motion animation being used outside of a cartoon context and outside of children's animation to be used as, as effectively photo real um, adversaries with adult actors in adult sort of situations. And interestingly, in race films, there are very, very few children. Um, and I like that. You know, I like something that looked as if it could be something I could aspire to. Maybe I could be Simbad or Jason and so on. So when I got my Super 8 camera, I set about making my own short films. Um, and then uh, in 1985, I was a BBC Young Filmmaker of the Year on the Saturday Picture Show um, who would taken over the competition because screen tests had been cancelled. Um, but they still had some people to to send certificates to when I was doing my A-levels, I applied to the London Film School or the London International Film School as it was called back in those days. And I was surprised when I had an interview and they, they said, yes, we'll, we'll take you after your A-levels. So I was 18 and everyone else at the school I went to was either 25 or 26 and older. And I didn't know anyone that old. They're parents and relatives, but I had no one in my social group. None of my peers were that old. So it was quite an interesting experience going to a film school where it was 16 and 35 millimetre film. During the third term of the first year, you're required to make a sync sound, a uh, 15-minute documentary on, on film. And, and sync sound just simply meant that the camera you had didn't make any sound, so you could record synchronised sound on a separate tape machine, a Nagra machine. I always thought it would be fascinating to do something with Ray Harryhausen I'd read that he lived in London, I opened a BT phone book, found him under R. Harryhausen at number two, Ilchester Place, Holland Park, and asked my parents if I could use the phone. It was back in the day when, <laughs> you know, different times of the day had different rates for minutes and so on. I think it was cheaper after six and than it was before six, and I think between nine and one it was a different price. So I rang him. He answered the phone himself and it kind of slightly threw me. And uh, it's like, uh, hello, this is Ray Harryhausen. And I was like, oh, now what do I say? So I kind of you know, spluttered out that um, I'm a film school student and I was interested in doing a documentary and can I come and meet with you and so on. So I went to meet with him at his house. He showed me some of the creatures that he had in his office. And it just sort of went from there. So I shot this um, 15 minute film looking at the creatures following him as he did some sort of research at the Natural History Museum and the London Zoo and uh, got some marvellous sort of photography of the creatures. And then to top it all, and this is what sort of um, a brass neck I had as an 18-year-old, I contacted Tom Baker's agent and asked if he'd do a free narration for my film. And uh, surprisingly, he said yes. So I was a little bit shocked, a little bit shocked (laughs) by that. So I had this particularly good, which I didn't realise at the time, this particularly good calling card of a a fairly straight-laced documentary. It wasn't about the usual film school subjects like, uh, you know, tattoos and prostitution and all these sorts of inaccessible (laughs) things. You couldn't show commissioners on television easily. And there was my little mini biopic with Tom Baker's voiceover. So it was marvellous. It was... I think the film that really got me started in television when I left then a year later from the film school, that was the film that I suppose got most noticed on my showreel. I started working as a director, started getting commissions and uh, sort of one thing sort of led to another and it was sort of a snowballing effect. But I, I stayed in touch with Ray all those years. He used my little short film to show sometimes at festivals to give a general introduction to who he was and in in recent years I sat down with him because I asked him you know why haven't you recorded commentaries for films like Clash of the Titans and the the Simbad's? and he said well because nobody asked I said oh oh because I know you'd done a couple for the early black and white ones and for Jason I thought maybe you didn't like it he said no no nobody asked Um, I said well do you fancy doing them and he said well mm, he, he was he was well in himself but the thought of dragging to a even a Soho um, dubbing theatre or or recording studio, to sit down with headphones on and technicians running around. He didn't find very conducive. And I knew from most of my factual work for TV that you get better results than people when they're at home. So if you can put somebody in a home setting, then they'll... You know, commentary is the best of them, are a form of regression therapy. So if your subject can remember things they hadn't recalled before... And that's what started to happen. We started on Clash of the Titans and worked our way backwards through all of Ray's films. I brought a full documentary crew with me. We filmed them as well as recorded them in sort of very high quality. And uh, we now have 25 hours worth of, of these um, high quality digital film and audio recordings that are part of the foundation's oral history. And we release segments of these in our podcast, which um, I hope you don't mind me plugging on your podcast.
1: (laughs) No, 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 we're going to do that anyway. So
2: so if you tune into the Ray Harryhausen podcast on iTunes and SoundCloud, you can hear clips that have previously unreleased of Ray chatting about his film, his work, his collaborators. And Ray asked me to become a trustee of his foundation, which he'd set up in the mid-1980s. Now, he'd set this up for two purposes. One was for the preservation of of the creature collection, but also because the paraphernalia around the films and all of the associated materials, photographs, sketches, designs, production stills, and uh, production arts, form a collective knowledge that if it was dispersed, that knowledge potentially would be gone forever. So the collection itself is over 50,000 items making it the largest of its kind anywhere outside of the Walt Disney company. Wow. So it's all the more surprising that there are only three trustees of which I'm one. And we have one member of staff, uh, Connor Heaney, who's, who co-hosts the, uh, the podcast series with me. And he's uh, very hardworking and uh, helps us set up all the, uh, in fact helps us. He sets up all the exhibitions with uh, the ones we had with uh, Tate Britain, the Barbican last year, and the Oklahoma science museum. So, we we try and make sure that things get seen where relevant and in the best conditions, and um, where possible. And now Ray's work is more relevant than ever. So as you as you touched on with Clash of the Titans, the reason there wasn't another film after that was because the reviews were were very unkind and said that the new guys from the Star Wars films, ironically, had uh, had taken over Ray's technique and had had advanced on it using motion control and go motion blurring and so on and so on. Um, and yet now we are returning to stop motion in a way that's the traditional form that Ray did it. Whether it's films like Isle of Dogs, which is opening soon, all of the Nick Park films, the stuff that um, Tim Burton has made with uh, you know Frank and Weenie, Nightmare Before Christmas, and so on and so on. Stop motion is now a big box office again. So it's it's an exciting time, and for Ray, it was particularly satisfying to see that his work had been reassessed, and he'd been given the um, the recognition, I think, for his place in film history, because he'd never won an Academy Award during his working years, nor had he been nominated for one. When perhaps he, he perhaps should have. But 25 years ago, he was given an honorary Oscar by Tom Hanks. And during the Academy ceremony, you can see we had very special permission from the Academy to put this on our Facebook page. You can actually see the um, the clip where. Tom Hanks introduces Ray Bradbury, who then gives Ray Harryhausen the award. And Tom Hanks says that you know he got into acting after watching *Jason and the Argonauts*.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, okay, so it's inspired actors as well as filmmakers. That's that's amazing. <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> I wonder what inspired him. Was it the skeletons? <laughs>
2: um, no, I think it, what it was was it was seeing the adventure. For Tom Hanks, it was the idea that as an actor you could go anywhere and meet beautiful women and fight the monsters. So I think it was literally he projected onto Jason. Oh,
0: okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. I like it. I like that story. That's 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 incredible. And uh, you, you know what what you've just said, the sort of journey that you've just outlined, um, I think is fascinating. Um, I'm actually I'm actually on one hand quite envious because that sounds amazing, but uh, on the other, I'm really kind of grateful um, that, that 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 you've done this. And that the reason I say that is, you know, people who always listen to the podcast know that. Um, I'm a big proponent of commentaries. I listen to loads of commentaries and stuff. And, uh, you know, just just, not just as a filmmaker, but just as a fan and somebody that's interested in in film. Um, And uh, I've noticed that there's some really nice Blu-ray editions of uh, many of Ray's films uh, starting to be released at the moment. So, um, you, you know, I'm really, really pleased to hear that. And then in terms of the preservation side, um, y- y- you know, I, I think that's that's really important also, um, because, you know, it, it is a different art form. And, you know, we are sort of, very much in the world of, of of computer generated imagery and stuff as as a sort of progression of film which is which is you know fine but uh but you know the, the we shouldn't forget the photochemical you, you know side of it you know the history of that and and obviously the uh the um you know stop motion and armatures and you know creatures and things of that nature as well so I think it's uh, I think it's quite important from a from a sort of um, cinema history point of view to to pres- preserve that as well as obviously pushing the boundaries and pushing the technology and 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 moving forward with it you know I think it's uh, important from both sides so um you know jolly good work to you and everybody else involved in in the in the foundation for that no, oh, thank you. What about you Simon? What was your what was your um uh you, Ray Harryhausen when when you grew up were there any particular films uh of his, you know, catalog that you you focused on? Well,
0: uh when I was a kid, I remember seeing the adverts for uh, Clash of the Titans uh, on the TV and uh remember seeing the posters outside the cinema and stuff and uh I, I like you Keith I didn't get a chance to see it at the cinema I don't know why my parents didn't take me to see it because it's the kind of film that you know I, I, you know, I really enjoy and I, I actually hold up Clash of the Titans really highly uh, so much so that I was kind of uh, annoyed with the remake especially when they uh, they threw the clockwork uh, owl away as if you know they were just saying well you know the old Clash of the Titans that was shit we're
1: better do you know i'm embarrassed to say i've not actually seen the re remake film or its sequel um not not for any not for any particular reason like i've boycotted it or anything i just simply haven't got round to seeing those films yet but um but but like you i'm definitely a fan of the original you know
0: yeah yeah because the uh the story's a, a lot better uh the the remake it's everything's faster and quicker and you know they they there's hardly any the romance in it and you know it's I mean I I really enjoyed the 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 original and uh, you know I have a lot of time for it uh, I grew up watching Jason the Argonauts, so you know the Sinbad films on TV um, I think that's sort of bad you know I, I think some of the some of the uh, dinosaur films but i think it was mostly sort of simbad and jason the argonauts
1: hmm. Do you know i've not I've not seen um I must admit I've not seen the western and uh, I think that that's a really intriguing idea actually about bringing uh, prehistoric creatures into into a western setting uh, I did see there is a really nice blu-ray of that out at the moment so I might have to go and treat myself to that one you know
2: <laughs> yeah do no valley of guanji is is spectacular because there's a there's a really awesome Lassoing of a T Rex by cowboys on horseback that has to be seen to be believed, and cinema audiences at the time were in for a a real treat. And when Spielberg's Jurassic Park came out uh, about uh, 25 years ago now, this year, Um, this is where the T Rex. I think it's Sam Neill and the the two youngsters hiding behind um, a large log or something. The T-Rex comes along and and bites the Gallimima and and chews it up. Um, That's a direct homage to the Valley of Guanji, where the same thing happens with the T-Rex there as it chases the little um, sort of Gallimima creature into into the valley. Um, So, you know, if you're familiar with... The the marvelous Jurassic Park. Then you you Just can slightly. see. In, yeah, right, well, you're, you're, the Omar should come and gently stroke you on the face as uh, oh. as, you're, as you're watching the film. So um, yeah. it 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 would be quite nice for you to see that with with fresh eyes.
1: No, I, I would well, definitely yeah. like to see that. I saw. I think there's a there was a little bit of it of the, I've I've watched the um the Ray Harryhausen documentary, the uh, special effects Titan documentary, and they right. had a little sort of clip from it in that but but uh it did make me think oh crap I've never actually seen that film in its entirety so uh so yes I'm definitely adding that to the uh to the viewing list which uh only ever gets longer
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know Spielberg he never homages anybody
1: (laughs) no not at all (laughs) so um uh some of the other things you brought up uh John that I thought was quite interesting there as well is that first of all the whole sort of Tom Baker story um that's quite fascinating that you got him on because again correct me if I'm wrong here but I believe it was Sinbad and the Golden Voyage that got him the Doctor Who gig because the producer Barry Letts uh went to see that film around the time they were looking to replace John Pertwee have I have I got that correct?
2: That's right. Where did you find that information out, Keith? That's terrific. Um, uh, probably yeah. from you, actually. <laughs> <laughs> we, we mentioned it at the screening. If um, Oh, it, there it, you go. You mentioned it at the screening. Yeah. yeah. I knew I knew so, it from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so what happened was um, uh, Tom Baker was working as a, a builder as labourer um, between acting jobs, So and which was uh, quite common at the time. He travelled down from, from Liverpool and was working in London. So he'd get different acting gigs. They wouldn't pay you know, enormous money and and even jobs that did pay well, a lot, such as the Golden Voyager Sinbad, you'd only be on it for a few months. So, you know, while you're waiting for that film to come out or looking for more work, you know, building work was, was perhaps one of the better things to do rather than bar work. I think if you get introduced to alcohol too early on, um, as, as Tom did after he took the role as, as Doctor Who, then it can be a bit more difficult. But um, he was working on a building site when he came home and got a note through from his agent who'd rang the landlady at the house where he was staying and uh doctor who producer barry letts had been in leicester square one wet wednesday afternoon saw golden voyager Sinbad, had already spoken to different agents and had offered the role around and had been turned down by people like ron moody for a second time because ron moody was offered it before john perswey um, as legend goes and he played of course Fagin in the musical version of Oliver and he's a terrific actor I saw him recently in the Tales of the Unexpected and you can get a sense of how he would have played that quite intense um, professor role and yes he saw him as as Kura in, in Simbad and he's really magnetic in that film he's, he's really a hypnotic presence he rang had a meeting with him the next day and, and pretty much offered him the role of Doctor Who um, a role that really, I think, saved Doctor Who or, or, or maybe in, invigorated it during the 70s because for many people, they vote Tom Baker as their most favourite Doctor of all time. I'm one of them. So very iconic role. And Ray had worked with uh, another Doctor who had appeared in two of Ray's films. Um, I could throw this out to you both, Simon and Keith, if you know who the other Doctor was and what were the other two films.
1: Is it is it Patrick Troughton? And, Again, correct. Uh, correct. I'm Justin trying to think. The Jason the Argonauts. Well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Don't know That's the right. other one.
2: Well, the other one was when he played uh, Melanthius in uh, *Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger*.
1: Ah, ah, of course. Yes. Okay. There you go. Go. I'm liking this trivia section. We we might have to add add this to our regular podcast, the trivia section, you know, although we do try and throw loads of it in anyway. But um, one one of the things I wanted to mention as well is um, I always find this quite interesting that uh, when you look at the the work that Ray did from, you know, the 50s up to, you know, Clash of the Titans, um, obviously... You know, all of these films have directors attached to them, like any film. But what I think is quite fascinating with um, Ray Harryhausen is, you know, everybody always refers to them as Ray Harryhausen films rather than, you know, necessarily mentioning the the director. And from what I understand, is you know, Ray was more than just the effects guy. Um, he He very much was involved in the entire production and did direct the actors in those scenes that involved um, live action mixed with with his um, stop motion. Uh, Are you able to expand on that a little bit more than, than I have?
2: Yeah, no, definitely. So where Ray separates from people like Dennis Muir and Phil Tippett, Stan Winston is these people bring their artistry to a film that's already been set up and they're asked, will you please come on board and create The Predator? Will you please come on board and create Robocop and so on? Ray initiated the ideas himself with producer partner Charles Schneer and effectively Ray was a Hollywood producer. So between him and Charles Schneer, they would produce these films. They'd, they'd, um, they'd pitch the ideas, they'd get the development money, they'd create concept art and in some cases, some maquettes. And then they would choose uh, the crew, which was essential, the cast and the director. You know, if you get the right director like Nathan Duran or Gordon Fleming, then it's going to be a really happy marriage. If you don't, um, it's not. It's going to be a very unhappy marriage. So Ray was very much in charge. So at the time, though, they weren't considered Ray Harryhausen films. I mean, if you picked up some sort of fan magazines, he had his own fan magazine Ray Harryhausen FX. And he'd be mentioned in Starburst and Starlog. But generally speaking, when you'd see them on release, the posters wouldn't say, new from Ray Harryhausen. Or in, or in the same way you'd see it from Walt Disney. It would say, Walt Disney's Aristocats, Walt Disney's Sword in the Stone. It never really said, well, uh, Ray Harryhausen Sinbad. So it's only since he's retired and gone into sort of golden retirement years And VHS and DVD box sets have have tried to find a commonality between titles that they've been rebranded as Ray's films. So I think at the time for some directors it was difficult coming in when pivotal scenes you had to kind of step to one side as Ray Harryhausen would direct those scenes because it's essential you have the right background plates material. Um, because you know where you're going to be placing the creatures and so on so as I say some of those um, associations were particularly fruitful and some weren't um, I'm not sure if I should name names but um, <laughs> Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger is an example of where it, it could have been better cast and better um, directed so you know as a result it was uh it was a sort of an end to the relationship at Columbia Pictures. So, you know, you have to be careful who you choose because the legacy... And, you know, we know this as filmmakers. If you start working with people who can let you down and it's taken you so many years to get somewhere, then they've got your entire legacy on on their shoulders with you. So it's it's, it's vitally important that you have the right team. But, um, you know, Ray had a fair amount of clout. As I say, he was a co-producer on the film. So it, it was decisions that were made jointly, but um, Charles Schneer was um, a d- very different personality to Ray Harryhausen. They were chalk and cheese, good cop, bad cop. I mean, there were, you know, there are were, there were lots of interesting stories about Charles Schneer. Um, but, you know, that's the nature of it. But Ray is quite unique in film history. No other special effects person, whether Willis O'Brien before or anybody else, would be the person who instigates the creative seed that becomes the film and eventually what you see on 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 the screen so that's that's very unusual even today there are very few special effects technician generated projects
1: Mm.
0: so would ray sort of find the script come up with the idea and find the script writers and get the team together or what was his his role in making the films
2: yes he would so in the case of Golden Voyage of Sinbad, for example, Ray wrote an outline for what he wanted the story to be for their next Sinbad adventure. And they went to Brian Clemens because, of course, he's a brilliant and um, British-based screenwriter and, mm. um, you know, has a very good reputation, clearly. He'd worked with Hammer. He was he was very much a man in demand. You know, even now, you can pick up books about Brian Clemens and when you're speaking to the Clemens brothers, it's their productions and titles we all know. So, mm. um that relationship's pivotal with the writer. And then everything grows from there. You know, which director of photography have I worked before? The DOP then brings on their own team because they'll have, um, you know, focus pullers and loaders and such that they will have worked before in the past. So a lot of it is about reuniting. You hear this on Bond films all the time. It's about reuniting the same family with a few additions. So I think it's, it's, it's very important. And Ray used to tailor the ideas they would choose to what was technically possible so a few times they came a bit unstuck with it um when they made the first colour film seventh voyage of sinbad it was difficult to get the quality in the background plates because the colour stocks weren't of the sufficient clarity as the black and white stocks had been
0: ah right yeah
2: and then when you get to first men in the moon the first anamorphic film so shot two three five to one or cinemascope panavision as some people think of it um, very difficult to create rear projections in those situations because of the uh, the necessity to distort the film at the point of shooting upwards and then re-distort it horizontally for projection it created hot spot effect in the rear projections behind the creatures um, where the models would be placed so a lot of that had to be rethought as traveling mats which which kind of really destroyed the budget but Charles Schneer Ray's producing partner was insistent they went for this very very widescreen um effect because television was taking a big bite out of cinema audiences so it was something that they were they were very aware of as was 3D you know they nearly did one of the films in 3D so Ray very much tried to embrace new technologies and new techniques but he was the driving force
0: Yes, I mean, it's, it's kind of uh, interesting that you bring up the point about them uh, doing sort of uh, cinemascope uh, to try and compete with uh, TV because the other day I was watching How the West Was Won, which was a, a different technique where they used three cameras side by side. to Cinerama, yeah. That's yeah. right, yeah. And it's, it's quite uh, disorientating because... Um, it's like watching um, like a panoramic uh, video. You know, with our phones, we can do panoramic photographs now. And it's very much like watching a film in like one of those. You can see where it kind of bends off to the sides and stuff. But uh, it's, it's always interesting how cinema always finds a way to try and uh, sort of, you know, get seats on, bu- uh, sorry, bums on seats. Be very different if they could get seats on bums. <laughs> ah, there you go.
1: Yeah, I mean that that how the West that was like a two sixty six to one aspect ratio, wasn't it? Which was mm. really, uh, I mean, that's mm. super wide. But obviously, something like a western and the sort of vistas that a western offers, I, I suppose, is sort of ideal for that kind of um, that kind of format. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting how um, you you know. Ray was always kind of limited by by the technology available at the time, but likewise how he tried to sort of push that and pioneer it. Um, yeah, very, very, very impressive. And I always think, I mean, on the Charles Schneer type thing, um, I always believe of, of, you know, all of the, uh, the best filmmakers, the best directors, the best creatives and stuff. You know, your success is only as good really as the sort of producer that you've got on board with you because you know so much of 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 it is business and uh without those individuals you, you know often artists really struggle with that side of things so um so so yeah I mean he he does he does definitely deserve some some note as well you know in all of this I guess
2: yeah no, absolutely without Charles Schneer there would have been no Ray Harryhausen in a sense so absolutely
0: but it's interesting you were saying that uh, previously when his films came out he wasn't really uh, acknowledged but I remember when I was a kid I, you always knew what a Ray Harryhausen film looked like you know I, I, I always sort of associated the name with those films so it's, it's kind of weird to think that at the time people really not so much well I guess the, uh, the way the films were promoted they weren't promoted as a Ray Harryhausen film.
2: No, and if you you know if you were just a person who goes to the cinema every Thursday and you don't mind what's on, you know clearly you you know yourself and Keith are people who've read a bit more and would have read the reviews and would have seen what's in magazines. So there would have been a nod to it there, but um, but no, I mean, and if we think of today's modern cinema, it's very much director led. We we don't really read about what. Um, what technicians are doing now, you know, what Doug Trumbull was doing, or you know, um, yeah. it, it, it's sort of—I don't mean, I mean clearly. I would—I'm a real fanboy. I'd love to know what Doug Trumbull <laughs> is doing now. Um, but it—it's—it it, it's, was always the case that technicians were seen as not being artisans, and I think this is where I think it, it changed with Ray Harryhausen. So he very much was an artisan.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you know, I'm part of your story as well. That I'm so impressed by uh, was the fact that you, you know, you you kind of picked up the phone to one of your heroes and and asked if you could do the documentary. I mean, that that's that's amazing. I, I know when I was. Um, when I was a kid, I always wanted to do a documentary on Glenn A. Larson when I was oh. growing up. And you know, obviously yeah. we lost him a few years ago, so that's never going to happen now. But uh, uh, obviously the difference was there is he was, he was based in Hollywood, uh, not, in, not in the UK. So I guess you kind of lucked out that Ray Harryhausen had chosen to make UK his home, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I was lucky. And when I went to see him, he,
2: as I realised afterwards, was putting me to the test asked me what my favorite film was my favorite sequence I was speaking to him about film techniques and what stocks I'm using at the film school what's happening with Kodak fast stocks for documentaries so he was very interested in that technical process and probably thought oh this is the kind of guy I would like to do a documentary with even if it is for a film student film so Mm -hmm. you know he needn't have bothered with me because I was no one I had no contacts I mean, literally, my only contact was with the TV industry was my parents who paid a TV license. That was it. Um, I had <laughs> I, everyone else I went to uh, school with had um, quite well-known parents. Um, I was, <laughs> I was in the same term as. Um, I don't think you mind me saying this, but uh, Michael Dealy's son, Manuel Dealy, was in my course, and cold. his father, yeah, his father had produced um, uh, the Italian job. And uh, and Blade Runner. So um, wow. not not just small potatoes. Just yeah. to name a few. And then there was well-known actors, kids that were at the school. So I, I really felt like um, I was way behind. But because I was so much younger, I got away with a lot more. But it, it, it is difficult, you know, to try and make sure that when you meet someone like Ray Harryhausen, that they you're he doesn't think you're trying to exploit him simply to make your film, that you actually have an interest in it. And when I give talks now to, I do talks for the foundation that I charge for that go, and the money goes to the restoration of the creatures. But when I do talks to industry folk, um, when I speak to film students, one of the first things I ask the room, um, and this will be blown now because everyone listens to your, your podcast. <laughs> I, 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 I ask them- Not everyone. What's <laughs> well, um, I, ask, I ask the room, you know, what's the single most important thing if for example you're making a documentary a single film documentary for the BBC um, what's the single most important thing to have for that film and it kind of travels the room between having the best camera or having the most money or possibly having good access and it, it often it, the, the the real question doesn't get answered the answer never comes from the audience and it's um, I, I mean I can give you both the chance to chip in if you if you think you know what the answer was or
0: well, I would have gone with like uh, good access, but uh, I guess good subject matter, the the what the story you're trying to tell, the uh, the person you're making the documentary about.
2: Yeah, I mean that, that's pretty much nearly it. I mean it's uh, it's having something to say. So you know, if you're a filmmaker who's just making content, which is fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you have nothing particularly to say, you don't have a unique voice. Then. There will be no reason to come back and recommission you. or There will be no reason to ask for your take on what's happening maybe in, in, in some aspect of social Britain today, um, whether it's Grenfell or homelessness and so on. So to to create your own voice, which is quite difficult, you know, it's not an easy thing to do, but to to start with having a clear voice and a clear way of how you want to make your film and having something to say will really set you apart from everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think you need what I'd say are the two Ps, yeah, you need to have passion and permission, <laughs> if you want to do, <laughs> d- do that, basically. <laughs> well, I, I've oh, done yeah, it with one, of, one of those Ps,
2: <laughs> sometimes one of those Ps it's more exciting, so if you've done yes, it with passion indeed. but no permission, you can make no permission part of your film. Mm. Indeed, yes. But you've got to have a point of
0: view. <laughs> well, think thing about that film, they uh, the guy went and shot in Disney, Disney World with no permission. I try to remember what it was called, but uh, I remember that was the whole selling point of it was that they went into Disney World and sort of shot it without any permission at all. Wow. I have to try and remember what that but- film's called. But you're right, for, for,
2: if you went to a commissioner and said, guess what, I've got no permission, they, they'd chuck you out of the <laughs> building. So, um, but you, yeah. so you're right, you know, permission is kind of key to getting a commission. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, for, for me, uh, with Ray, it was a credibility test. You know, people had asked him to do documentaries before. He didn't like the creatures being filmed up close. Uh, and in fact, I wasn't allowed to film a Medusa at the time. Um, so he, he told me, he, I told him which creatures I was interested in filming, closely and then he told me which ones i was going to be allowed to have so um and filmed in his house i mean i didn't take them away or anything so he was he was rightly protective of the legacy of of the of the creature collection
1: no absolutely Uh and so he should be so he should be (laughs) but uh no it's, it's good that you did it in fact um uh interestingly as well i'm going to give you a plug here on this as well um i I bought uh, recently a magazine that's come out this month called Infinity. Uh, it's a it's a magazine that reminds me very much of the sort of magazines I used to get when I was a kid, you know, the likes of Starburst and Starlog and, you know, that sort of thing. And I originally uh, got it because it's got uh, articles on Blake 7 and Battlestar Galactica, which has people you know who regularly listen know are, are two you know massive things that i loved as a kid growing up and you know still love to this day and uh oh and in fact simon there's a uh jeanette goldstein aliens uh interview in here as well because we always have to ah. mention aliens on every uh, aliens every podcast well, yeah. but there's actually a um a whole interview john with yourself uh, about Ray Harryhausen a whole spread in here which was uh, quite impressive with pictures of you looking yes like very young with him and then a picture of you with him and John Landis uh you know I guess not long before um before Ray left us is that right yes that's right
2: um I've um, we were in touch with Alan Bryce who 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 creates that magazine he's the publisher through Hemlock Books for Infinity and uh, he was interested in me writing a piece about the foundation. And I said, well, look, you know, i read Infinity before and I like its kind of retro vibe. I could do something that talks about my first um, experience of seeing Clash in the cinema and trying to get it on VHS and so on. And he said, oh, yeah, do do something. We'll have a look. And uh,
1: yes, it became that six, six pages, I think it was, in the end. It um, did, yes. Quite a spread. And, and it made me laugh when you mentioned about, because again, it made me think of my childhood. You mentioned about um, having to raise one pound 50 to get the look-in uh, comic adaptation of clash of the titans or whatever which uh, which did make me chuckle i remember those look-in adaptations you know
2: <laughs> and you had to get them while they were there because within a week or two they'd be gone and and that's it you, you couldn't really order back issues or ask the news agent any questions it's you know you know you have to get it when you see it. That's one of those yeah. things, isn't it? You know, if we if um, we've
1: got any millennial listeners out there, they're probably scratching their forehead right now, going, "Huh? <laughs> oh, can you just Google it?"
2: <laughs> they're thinking, "How old are
1: these
0: guys?" <laughs> they're trying to yeah. trying to guesstimate yeah, our
2: age. We're ancient. Think, you know? Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> hey, well, we're yeah. not that old. Ish. I, I I remember buying a copy of Looking uh, when they were. It had Star Wars in it so yeah
1: i remember yeah there you go oh what a what a great era though i'm sorry but it it was (laughs) it was it was a bloody bloody brilliant time so uh yeah um and and you know obviously ray ray's films were um they were a big part of it well because yeah i mean because of because of the success of, of of um you know star wars and you know, suddenly we'd get reruns on, on television of, uh, you know, all of the previous science fiction series. And we'd, you know, we'd get a lot of Ray's films being, uh, being shown because, you know, there was an interest in that whole, you know, what people used to consider special effects type, you know, fantasy films and, 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 and all that sort of thing and, and amazing stuff, you know? So, um, uh, I mean, I guess another thing to to mention about Ray is is he obviously um, had a very special relationship with the other Ray, as in Ray Bradbury, right? Yes, that's right. He'd he'd grown up um, effectively with
2: Ray Bradbury. They were good friends growing up, and. They worked uh, kind of loosely together on the, um, the Washington Post short story that uh, uh, Bradbury had written. And it became the basis for The Beast from 20,000 Fathoms. They did have plans to work on other projects together. There's a very long history of correspondence between them both. And we recently did an episode of our podcast speaking to the, the Ray Bradbury Society and uh, we're in talks with them about releasing some of the letters between both Rays as a possible book in 2020 for Rays Centenary.
1: Oh, wow. Oh, fabulous. Okay. All right. Well, I mean, can you tell us, I mean, obviously, we want people to tune into your podcast as well, where you're going <laughs> to drill into all of this stuff in much more detail than than just, our, you know, our one. But um, can you tell us a little bit about then the... Uh, the 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 foundation trust and and the work and the preservation work and all of that sort of stuff yeah
2: absolutely yes so we exhibit at museums the creatures that you will know from films so at the moment we've got a very small but beautifully curated exhibition at valance house and that's in dagenham in essex um the person who who works um who's our conservator alan friswell is a dagenham boy And he um, is the only person that Ray Harryhausen worked with in terms of the preservation and conservation of the creatures. So some of the items are down there at the moment. You've got Medusa, Bubo the owl, Pegasus, the hydra, and some skeletons from Jason and the Argonauts, and a few others as well. So exhibitions like that, and we had one last year at the Tate and the Barbican in the UK, and the Oklahoma Science Museum in the US Great opportunities to get the creatures out. Good fundraisers because the foundation is a charity, we need the money in. And we're doing other things that spin off from that. So I do talks, I do screenings, and we've got a poster book coming out this year, which looks at the vast amount of posters in our archive and that the fans have around the world. Um, it's called um, Harryhausen the movie posters. You can pre-order it now on Amazon through Tyson Books. It's written by Richard Hollis Richard used to write a lot for Starburst magazine so back in the day when you were buying Starburst with your dinner money like I was, <laughs> Richard Hollis was writing a lot of the, the main articles, he was one of the main feature writers there um, so it's great for me to be able to team up with Richard um, and for him to write this book because he knew Ray Harryhausen very well so that's coming out and uh, and we've also been nominated for some Rondo Awards, so the Rondo Hassan Awards so the podcast has been nominated, and the Oklahoma Science Museum exhibition was nominated as well. So, uh, and also a magazine article in Scream magazine that that came out last year. So, Ray's work is is very present, if you like, on the museum circuit. But separate to that, and something which you know, the Charles Schneer side of my brain is clicking in now, because <laughs> Ray, although he kept everything, and he was a He was a hoarder, if you like, by modern day standards. That was more to do with the fact he was a child of the Great Depression. So he found a value in everything. You never really threw anything away. And that was the same for, in this country, when older people talk about um, rationing, you know, you could always make something from the bones of your chicken. You would never throw those out and so on and so on. Well, Ray never threw anything away, so we have everything not because he thought we would do something with it in museums in the future, but because, but because he thought it had some value, you know, everything has some value. Now the films that Ray didn't make are probably the things that have the most value in the Foundation's archive. And we are actively now pursuing um, you know, a couple of specific projects um, with a view to trying to get Ray back onto the silver screen.
1: Well, that would be great. That would be amazing.
2: (laughs) It really would. I mean, it would be truly wonderful.
0: So these projects that he didn't make, um, were there any of the creatures actually made or...? was it yes. just sort of they were Oh okay. yes
2: we have we have concept sketches we have some um, sculptures and we have some bronzes as well because ray was a big fan of ah. doing stuff in bronze he would sometimes bring a big bronze to a pitch meeting to show people this is what the producer will look like you know so um he'd 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 bring things along that we would impress and we have as I said before we have the the full screenplay for for Clash of the Titans follow up Force of the Trojans and we have other Sinbad adventures we have uh, just a variety of different projects so now that we've got everything into one place because before Ray left us he had several houses and he had different sort of lockups with things that he didn't know he had either so now we've collated everything together in into one space and we've had somebody working on it now for a few years, so that we know what we've got and what we haven't. But mostly, it's what we've got. We can now properly assess and move forward. And admittedly, you know, these films were developed at a time when um, budgets were for these types of films were much smaller. So your um, your your overall vision of the project might be somewhat pedestrian in places. But you know, there's an opportunity to expand on those. There's a lot of interest in these prophecies. and now's probably as good a time as any, with Ray's centenary coming up in 2020 to try and get you know something um, something moving. Excellent.
1: Mm. No, definitely, definitely. That sounds exciting. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things as well. I was I was having a chat with um, one of our podcast friends, uh, Jason Finn, about this uh, the other day. Is is it right that? Um, Ray used to also recycle some of some of his creations for other films. So, in other words, you know, as a sort of almost like I guess a money saving thing, but he'd use the armature from from one creature and sort of rebuild it for something else. Is that correct? It, it, it
2: is, and it's horrifying it's to shame. think about it. Yeah, <laughs> but he 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 basically skinned the cyclops. So, with a knife, he cut the skin off of it and skinned it, so he could use the armature for something else. Um and in the end he didn't use the armature for something else. Um in, in more recent films, from sort of um well I suppose from I suppose there's very few films he did that in. I mean it's it's really the early film. So from I guess Mysterious Island onwards, nothing was really recycled. I think one of the Trogs was recycled for Calabos for Clash of the Titans from Eye of the Tiger, but we have most of the creatures in their original form, but he did occasionally recycle <clears throat> because making the the, the, um, the steel armatures for inside was very time-consuming and uh, and you know relatively expensive as well.
1: Yeah, now I can imagine. But uh, and the other thing I, th- I think that's important for us to sort of mention here, because again, it's 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 quite mind-blowing to think about this. But um, you know, when we look at modern cinema and we look at the amount of, uh, you know, artists, often digital artists nowadays, but, you know, the amount of artists that are involved in the creation of of these type of visual effects or special effects action sequences. But Ray, he did most of this on his own. Is is that correct?
2: He did all of it on his own, up, up to Clash of the Titans. So everything, the backgrounds, the foreground miniatures um you know creating the models the armatures the sculpting the, you know putting the hairs and the creatures it was a necessity in one way because the budgets they had they, although they were they weren't B pictures they were always sold as A pictures they were very small budgets you know you look at um golden voyager simbad had had a had a, had a, had a, a it was under a million dollars the budget for that so it was a, it was a particularly low budgets and they had to turn things around very very fast indeed so there wasn't always the opportunity to get more technicians on board and plus ray would have found it a distraction but for clash of the titans where there was so much animation they needed to bring in a, f- a couple of other animators to do sequences with booboo and with pegasus ray pretty much worked on his own but if you think of the uh, the commissioning process or the uh, the green light process in hollywood You're head of the studio and you just commissioned a new Sinbad film. It's going to be maybe two, two and a half years before it hits cinema. You could have been moved out by then. The incoming head of the studio will get the credits if it's a success. And if it's not, they'll blame your legacy. So long lead dramas or documentaries for television, I get this as well. If it's going to be a long lead project and you're not going to resurface for a year or more, people don't really want to know because it's such a musical chairs in terms of management and in terms of um, ownership of a success. So it became harder and harder in some ways to get people to, um, you know, to agree to let them make the films because it would take so long in post. But ironically, with all of the new technology, it's not sped things up in post. If anything, it's made it a more entrenched and complicated space to work in and to navigate through, and changes are virtually impossible. Um, But, you know, it's not, yeah, it's not to distract from people You know, there's some very good people and it, I don't want to appear as if I'm anti-CG because there's some excellent artistic work being done
0: I was going to say, I remember when uh, CGI was first being used and uh, the talk was that it was going to bring the cost down it was going to make uh, the, the cost of feature films a lot more cheaper uh, but uh, if anything, it's gone the opposite way the amount of money now spent on uh, these films are so much more you know it's it's more than the uh, I guess the gross product of some countries is what's spent on on one film
2: well if you just look at the digital workflow if it was just a drama film and you and you're shooting on a high-end red camera it would sometimes be more cost effective to shoot on a 35 millimeter and then you can edit on a on a six plate steambeck you could buy a steambeck for like 500 quid um, and you could spend as long as you like editing. Whereas if you're shooting digitally, you know, everything is, is a cost of thousands. Um, you know, I, I've spoken to people at the BBC about can I shoot something on film? And because none of them are used to working in a non-digital workflow, they're like, no, you can't. Mm. Uh, and even, even though you explain to them, you know, it could actually work out cheaper if we do it this way with the lab time and everything else. They're like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not familiar with a, a non-digital workflow. So photochemical effectively has, has, has died out because of that. And even now when big yes. movies come back to the cinema, it will be a DCP of Blade Runner or Silence of the Lambs yeah. or whatever's had a 4K scan, which I'm all in favour of. I, there's nothing worse than seeing a ropey old print um, that's yes. got frames missing at the changeover. And Ray would agree, you know, he never liked um, well-known organisations on the south bank showing really bad prints simply because they're on film I mean that's that's it's a nonsense you know the filmmakers toes start to curl when they see a print you know from 30 or 40 years ago that should have been junked being showed to a yes. ticket paying audience
0: well I, I worked at a cinema we had a few prints in uh, that uh, was a bit worse for where I remember we one Halloween we showed a uh, a print of Ghostbusters which I imagine did come from uh, uh, was it
2: 86 84
0: 84 it's 84, 84 yeah. sorry I was God I was alive then um, but yeah it, it was scratched to shit it was really in a bad state and uh, I also saw like the Lost Boys where they had I think whole yeah whole bits missing mm. of, of scenes it was yeah it's, it's when a it, when it print's that bad it's kind of it really is hard to watch
2: well, that's why Ray approved all of the the new scanning of his films, the uh, the four K scans that Columbia have done of all of his projects. They they kept him informed of what they were doing. Um, and it's, it's great because the films look better than they ever did. And in the case of a 4K scan, that's a better quality than you would have got in the cinema at the time from a print from mm-hmm. an interpos And, of course, stereo sound. You know, none of Ray's films except Clash of the Titans were released theatrically with stereo sound. So it's lovely to have um, stereo sound on the films because it gives them a real... It just makes it feel more like what people would hear when they go to the cinema normally. So the Golden Voyager yes. Sinbad had a lovely stereophonic sound. And when you know how that originally sounded like, it's it's literally night and day by comparison. It really is wonderful.
1: No, absolutely. So why then after um, Clash of the Titans did, did uh, Ray not make any further films? Was it to do with this whole thing about the the, the, the time versus budget to actually you know turn projects around it was you know up until
2: clash they'd done most of their films with columbia pictures they couldn't um they couldn't meet the budget that clash of the titans needed um, simbad and the eye of the tiger was something like three million dollars they needed 15 million to make clash so only mgm was prepared to put up the money for that The film was wildly successful but mgm were going through its own really big problems and effectively went into bankruptcy Mm -hmm. uh, about a year or so after clash of the titans not because of clash if anything clash probably helped it stay solvent for longer than it should have done um special effects landscape was changing rapidly the reviews were quite harsh for clash of the titans and charles Schneer was interested in unbelievably working with somebody new um for special effects so that was inevitably going to put a wedge between the two of them and force of the trojans which should have come out in 1984 then didn't happen and something else did happen around that time columbia pictures released a very big budget film called krull
1: oh yes we we've talked about that on this podcast yeah Yeah.
2: (laughs) which personally i like krull i mean a lot of people would say oh it's a terrible film it lost a ton of money it cost a ton of money it lost a ton of money It had a cyclops in it. It had flying horses in it. It even had a stop-motion spider by Steve Archer, who'd worked on Clash of the Titans. And the film tanked. So it was almost sort of the the final nail in the coffin for that type of fantasy film, where there was a voyage and there was a hero and there was a monster and so on. And although it wasn't a Ray Harryhausen film, it could have been. And I think that put paid to force of the Trojans properly happening anywhere else. And, you know, things move on quickly in Hollywood. If you're not making films, then you've pretty much been retired. And, you know, Ray never felt he had retired as such. And as much as he'd say to people, oh, I've retired. That was my last movie. It That wasn't the true story. The true story was he was trying to get things going for a while. Um, I think it was only when he received the Lifetime Achievement Oscar from Tom Hanks that he went into a new and more satisfying phase of his life where he became the Grand Master of Special Effects, was honoured uh, and found his rightful place in history, received a Hollywood star on the Walk of Fame and started speaking, doing lectures, giving interviews and holding court basically with the grace and the good from, from Hollywood who are now the young people going to the cinema in the sort of 60s and 70s were now the young people who had grown up and were making Lord of the Rings or Terminator and so on, and Jurassic Park. So he lived long enough to see that, but uh, it took him a long time to realise that his retirement had started on the day Clash of the Titans was released.
1: Wow. Yeah. Now, I mean, uh, yeah, they, I guess they all went on to sort of, uh, you know, space-bound movies and stuff, you know, at that point. But um yeah, it's it's uh it's 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 kind of a shame that he wasn't able to do any more, but you know, very 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 uh good that he was at least um you know, recognized and and, and honored for what he what he did achieve. Um I remember I was kind of gutted because uh he did a um he had a did a sort of Q&A conversation at uh, the BFI a few years back and for whatever reason I couldn't actually make it I, I wasn't able to go to it I think it was a work thing or something and uh you know obviously um not long after that he passed and I was like damn you know I, I never got the chance to uh to um to see him and uh you know hear him talk about his work but uh, but hey but there are there are other means to to hear that now so that's good yeah you know.
2: <laughs> there are through our podcast was that the 90th um birthday celebration you're talking about
1: I think it may have been, yes. Right, because that was filmed
2: by BAFTA. And if you go onto BAFTA's YouTube channel and search on it... I'm aware of it. Yeah, so if you (laughs) search for Ray Harryhausen 90th or the Ray Harryhausen BFI, that should pop up and you'll be able to watch excerpts from the ceremony and see Peter Jackson and Ray and, and everyone else and John Landis, who hosted that night. So there's an opportunity for you to revisit.
1: Right, no, I must do that for sure. Yes. Well, what about, I mean, um, obviously we've talked a lot about Ray, which is, which is great. Um, and obviously there's, there's, there's movies there that, uh, that we love and, you know, has is, is inspired other movies that we like, but um, what about, I mean, what about yourself and your film projects? Uh, tell us a little bit more about that if, if, if you can.
2: Well, when I got started in um, working in TV, I was interested in sort of areas around social mobility and social justice, and what I was finding that there were very few documentaries in prime time around issues that affect us all, but maybe we don't necessarily want when we've got some much more passive viewing planned. So I was um, one of the first people to send teenagers on gap year experiences for television. I did um, Channel 4's first anger management series, Don't Make Me Angry, that brought psychologists into people's homes. Um, On BBC Two in 2006, I made Headhunting the Homeless, which was quite an important series for me because it looked at how homeless people could get work. Um, with big corporate companies like Marks & Spencer's, Press & and Waits Construction. But it was played opposite Channel 4's Wife Swap when that was in, I think, its second series. And so <laughs> my show played in, in a prime slot on BBC Two. And... I think we were three concurrent Wednesdays and we got nominated for Grierson's and BAFTA's and what have you. But we beat Wifeswap in one of our three episodes. And I'd been shooting for a year and a half making this series. And Channel 4 were like, this is very interesting. Come and see us. So I, I was headhunted across by making a show called Headhunting the Homeless. Headhunted across by Channel 4 to speak to them about making programmes. And it was around about that time I realised that if if I can attract commissioners to invite me to speak with them, I have much more chance of surviving and staying afloat in an industry which is notoriously competitive and has a very high churn rate amongst people. Um, I must say, I've been quite lucky. You know, I've uh, been making TV now for a long time and made programmes on subjects that, um, you know, aren't necessarily what people would expect to see in primetime or on BBC One. And in 2010, I took the unusual step of um, standing for Parliament and filming my experiences and my adventure. And uh, I was warned by lots of people, don't do it. And I did it anyway. And it was quite successful for me. So uh, Tory Boy the movie, as it was called, came out in... <laughs> yep, yeah, as it, unbelievable, yeah. It was going to be a... Um, two 10-minute films that uh, Channel 4 News were interested in showing. And it was all about um, tribal politics and how people are prepared to switch brands as they are prepared to switch politics. And I'd always been a Labour voter, and so I was interested in switching to see what it was like. although uh, well, it was slightly more complicated <laughs> than that. And so the, um, the two short films that I had intended making, Channel 4 News had already indicated they wanted them. And that was going to pay for part of my um, or all of my campaign up there in Middlesbrough, lovely sunny Middlesbrough. And of course, I uncovered a bit of a political scandal instead. So I came back with seventy-two hours, and with the help of Fremantle Media, who look after some of my back catalogue, I was um, able to put it into cinemas twice, once in 2011, and again when the election happened again in 2015.
1: So oh, well done.
2: That was um, <laughs> that was marvellous. You know, it's an idea of taking something simple and putting yourself in the centre of it. So it's a very authored approach. And it just it just really took off. And it was, it was something that was quite revelatory. So people who'd come to screenings expecting to see, effectively, a party political documentary and so on were quite surprised by, by what I uncovered. And because the London media has a London-centric blind spot, lots was going on. In this northeastern town, that um, that shouldn't have been for 30 years, and it it took me, an outsider, to uncover it. So something that was common knowledge there, or an open secret, as you might call it, was suddenly exposed on a national platform, and uh, created quite a quite a bit of a stir at the time, which was um, which was fascinating. But simply the commercial success of doing that meant that it opened the door to me to be able to say, oh, I have other stuff <laughs> that um, that I want to to revisit. So I'd made a film about the death of Henry VIII starring T.P. McKenna and Gene Marsh years and years and years ago. And uh, Fremantle were prepared to, to help me find the camera negative and get it scanned in, in HD and create a DCP for it. And it was released just before Wolf Hall came on BBC One. So we were able to oh, kind wow. of surf off a bit of the uh <clears throat> a bit of the old henry the eighth wave that was happening there with bbc drama um but years ago when i made it people were like mm, henry the and it was i couldn't get i mean i had it shown at a few festivals and so on internationally but there was so few things happening in the uk with with the film industry everyone was making sort of mockney gangster films you know um so my my film with an average cast age of i think 72 was was just you know just (laughs) overlooked this time radio times got behind it lots of people liked it and it really got lovely reviews which was which was heartening um because we had a a lovely little cast and you know the film got a re-release as a result of me standing for parliament which was a quite a bizarre turn up um and so a new bridge was built with BBC drama as a result of that because some of them came to the screening. So, you know, all of these projects I'd done in the past, whether it's my short Ray Harryhausen film or this Henry VIII film called Monarch, they all seem to have this sort of second life. Um, and I you know I think it's important. That if you know where your original materials are and you can do a HD scan, then things can have a second life. If they're old, then they're a record of the time. So I think it's always important to look after your assets as a filmmaker and see if they can be mined from time to time um you know you think about christmas there's some awful films on at christmas but because they're christmas films we're happy to see well we're happy to see dudley moore as an elf um you know and I, i do like santa claus the movie but it was a phenomenal disaster when it came out along with supergirl and the previous year for Alexander Solkind. But, um, you know, they're the films that we love to watch at Christmas. So with an election film, um, every now and then when there's an election, my film will, will pop back up onto whatever platforms there are. Um, and, you know, there's, a, there's there's money to be made out of it. Certainly.
1: Wow. What what a story. Yeah, no, absolutely. <laughs> I like it. I like it a lot. Um, are there any other projects that uh, that, you know, you've got like kind of, you're trying to get off the ground or or anything that in particular that you'd uh, that you'd like to tackle if you were given the chance um well i've got a couple of things with the bbc at the moment because um, i've kind of um spent a lot of years at the bbc
2: in the last few years i'm not staff but um i'm a i'm a preferred supplier which sounds um, very shifty, doesn't it? But uh, very um, BBC,
1: yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but uh, they should give me like a badge or a sash or something when I walk in. No one knows I'm a preferred supplier, you know. But uh, hey, um, it's 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 simply a case if you can get to meet commissioners, that that bit's easier. Um, but I've got a couple of things with the bieb at the moment. Um, but I've got two Harryhausen projects, of which um, "Force of the Trojans" is one, which we hope to be able to talk a bit more about. Um, you know, soon, hopefully a bit more this year, and and another Harryhausen project for 2020 called Harryhausen 100, um, which uh, which is going to be much more centenary based, and so that's um, the, that's our immediate Harryhausen plans. So.
1: Um, you've got what three years is it three years no two years yeah, yeah it's less than
2: that. yeah so um f- for us the, the centenary although it's june 2020 um mm. if if we want to be ready for as somebody said to me recently if you want to be ready for the awards corridor you've got to be ready to deliver for september 2019 so it's like oh, oh no, no pressure there yeah.
1: yeah. That window's getting small, no yeah. absolutely um I've got a question actually I-, I mentioned earlier that I've not personally seen the um the remakes of uh, Clash of the Titans, but um they did a sequel to that, I believe, but is is this a completely different story to to the one that you're talking about? Yes,
2: because um Force of the Trojans doesn't have the same characters. it was the next film up. But with all different characters in a Greek setting, so it doesn't it doesn't carry on,
1: right? Okay, because what did they do? Was it called Wrath of the Titans or something? Wasn't it? Wrath, I, Wrath, Wrath of the, of the Titans. Titans. Okay, yeah,
2: Wrath of the Titans. Yeah, so um, cashing in on 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 their Clash Wrath of the Titans of Khan- remake <laughs> and Wrath of Khan, I guess. Yeah, but it's a funny thing yeah. when when people went to see um, the two thousand and ten Clash of the Titans. Um, it actually got people talking about Ray's film and so that got re-released on Blu-ray and it really, it was a point at which people could revisit Ray Harryhausen and although people went to the cinema, I don't think they had the same sense of enjoyment or wonderment as when they first saw Ray Harryhausen's film and we've shown at the BFI Clash of the Titans from 1981 to a family audience a couple of years ago and to be honest, I was quite anxious that um, young people who are quite sophisticated these days would find it, um, you know, not to their liking. And I was I was delighted that they were absolutely enthralled by it. And some kids were watching it through their fingers. And it was only when um, Medusa's head gets cut off and it's really gory, I realised, oh, hang on, this is really, really violent. Um, so some kids absolutely just loved the violence and, and became immersed in it because they weren't aware that stop motion is is a is a lesser form of filmmaking. They were just aware that it's different. And some kids said they just found it creepy the way the creatures moved. So, you know, if you can keep people in their seats for two hours and they're used to seeing
0: um, you know, as a,
2: as it were, more sophisticated Avengers style creatures, then um then it shows that Ray's films still have a place and not just with old guys like us, but with, you know, new audiences
1: yeah now i'm actually quite i'm quite relieved to hear that because i often wonder whether you know sometimes you know these these films that i liked you know that used um stop motion effects or practical effects or model effects etc um you know i often wonder how much of that is actually nostalgia and how much is is you know it working in terms of telling the story and, and, and engaging the audience. So mm. the, the fact that you said that there were, you know, young people in the audience, kids of today in the audience that could uh, that were still sort of moved and frightened and impressed by watching the sort of old stop motion um, effects there, uh, you, you know, I actually find that quite encouraging because I think you're absolutely right when you say it is just another form of of telling the story it's not uh you know it's not that there's anything wrong with cg but at the same time does that need to be the only way uh you, you know to, to 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 get that information across and i think you, you know the fact that like you said young people there uh reacted to it means that's answered that question no it's not the the only way to do something now which is uh i think quite encouraging
2: Exactly. And at the golden voyage of Sinbad screening, there were, there were quite a few young people and some children and they, they sort of very much, you know, enjoyed it and had favourite moments and had scary parts and, and, and so on. And, and I think as we move forward, the idea of doing something bespoke, handcrafted, individual, one-off, I think that that's coming back. And it's not just a dewy-eyed sense of the past, hoping it will come back. I think there's a real demand for, for something else and something different not necessarily something new or more advanced but something that's a new immersive experience so you know had Ray been around he would have almost certainly um, embraced modern 3D technology and perhaps maybe some form of, of computer render as well or go motion blur but um, you know sadly he's not but I think there's there's always a way to bring the old and new together.
1: No, absolutely. Well they they'll put it so there was definitely one big kid sat in that Sinbad screening and that was me. So uh yeah, it was <laughs> it was uh it was uh really good to see it projected like that. So um yeah, good stuff. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to ask you one more question, John. It's putting you on the spot a little bit, so apologies. But um, as you know, our our podcast is called Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And uh, I didn't ask you to think about this beforehand, but uh, if you had to give uh, your personal Movie Heaven and Movie Hell of uh, Ray's films, what would you pick?
2: Um, Well, for Movie Heaven, for my fave, I suppose it'd have to be Golden Voyage um it's 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 wonderful i mean it's it's um it's mischievous it's dark it's um it's malevolent it really creeps people out i had um i I people similar age to myself who hadn't seen the film and they said we're creeped out by the figurehead when it came alive and you know it's um i think that film has a real power and a real sense of um foreboding and i think it really captures a certain moment in cinema history and i suppose for movie hell i don't know if i'm allowed to say because i'm a trustee of the foundation um, Can
1: I, can I take uh, the, can well I take, you can have a least favorite can't you without actually rubbishing it yeah but, you know well, you, your least favorite let's put it that way
2: well i think ironically what comes up next and a lot of people have said this is that um sinbad and the eye of the tiger isn't the film it could have been with the budget it had So it had a budget that was three times what Golden Voyage of Sinbad was and yet you don't feel it's three times the excitement or three times the creatures. And it's because critics of Golden Voyage who felt it relied too much on the dark arts and the devil and Satan wanted that not to appear in the next Sinbad family film. So the creatures are very much from the natural world. So you have a baboon Mm -hmm. or a large wasp or a walrus and so on um, and the troglodytes. So I think for many people, and perhaps myself, um, that might be movie hell for me.
1: Okay, fair enough. What would you pick, Keith? Oh, um, I'm just trying to think. Uh, You see, I'm, you know, without wanting to sound just the same, but I've I've got a special place for the Sinbad films, always have done. But I think if I was going to pick movie heaven... I would probably pick Jason and the Argonauts because I still think that that is absolutely fantastic. And, you know, the, the the skeleton scene will, you know, stay with me forever as it does many people as a reference. So I guess that would be movie heaven. Um, ugh, movie hell. Uh, yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, you know i see it's all very well for me to <laughs> ask these questions when i when i haven't thought about how i'd answer them myself yes. isn't it um uh i don't know i mean uh, it's,
0: it's fair enough i put you on the spot but uh my,
1: m- yeah well i put i put john on the spot so it's only fair <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> um I, I, for my yeah. picks i would go with uh clash the titans i think it's a film that, it it really holds up to this day and uh it's got a lot of suspense in it, and uh, the the Medusa scene is uh, it's it is nail biting stuff. It's it's done so well, and um, I just I just love the story as well. I just love the the whole sort of romantic side of it, and uh, the you know uh, the whole sort of uh, trials that. Uh, that they go through so uh that's that for me is heaven and uh for hell i probably would go with um eye of the tiger It is the the lesser of, of the the sinbad films
1: yeah i'll say that too eye <laughs> yeah. of the tiger it's easy isn't it we're all the greed then so uh, although as i said there are a few a couple of films um i'm ashamed to say that i haven't seen and uh you know as i said i definitely want to check out. Um, uh, the western one which the name's gone out of my head the Valley, Valley of, of something Valley of Guanji. Valley of Guanji. yes uh, I definitely want to check that out because I've not seen that one and uh, it, you know just just the premise alone uh, intrigues me so uh, I, I, yeah, I want to check that out
2: <laughs> a, a small word of defence for Simbad in the Eye of the Tiger when we have any online polls to find our favourite Harryhausen creature often Minotaur, the gold half man half bull Uh, minotaur effectively minotaur often comes out as um you know one of the top three top four creatures in all of ray harryhausen's uh, collective so a little shout out there from minotaur from uh, eye of the tiger oh excellent
1: ah there you go and of course there were a lot of um ray harryhausen imitators as well weren't there i mean there are other films that have come out using similar uh, techniques that aren't necessarily uh, done quite as well. But uh, but I guess that's a whole other podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah, Jack the Giant Killer and other films that we, we, we shouldn't mention in the same breath.
1: Yeah. Yes. Okay. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> well, um, please then use this opportunity to, uh, you know, to plug the podcast and any other, you know, any other things coming up regarding you know, either Ray Harryhausen or things that you're doing yourself? Uh, where can people find it?
2: Excellent. Well, you can find more about um, the foundation at rayharryhausen.com, where you can find our Facebook and Twitter links. And you can also find links to our podcast, which is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. And it's imaginatively titled The Ray Harryhausen Podcast. Um, we have the book coming out this year, the poster book, and we have different exhibitions planned. So we'll have more information about that later in the year and of course we've got the Rondo Award so if you, if you feel like you want to vote for us we're mentioned in three categories so the Oklahoma Science Museum for Best Exhibition uh, Scream Magazine an interview I gave there last year about the Valley of Guanji actually um, it's been nominated for an award and our podcast series has been nominated for Best Multimedia so it'd be lovely to have a, a Rondo award uh, to add to the collection and uh, if you want to find out more about myself and my programs I'm at walshbros.co.uk and you can follow me on Twitter, Facebook and the like and you can see some of my programs in full HD on our Vimeo channel and it's all there at
1: walshbross.co.uk.
0: Wow and uh, Keith where can people find your work?
1: Well, I'm not quite as well organised as as John here, but uh, uh, if you if you go to YouTube and put in British Isles, that's E Y L E S, as in my last name. Uh, You can see short films that I've written, produced and directed on there. Uh, I'm in one of them as well. And if you want to see other work that I've done, uh, if you put my name into IMDB, uh, many, although not all of the credits are there.
0: (laughs) And uh, as always, you can find my work at independentrunnings.com. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube and all good podcast providers. You can follow us on uh, Facebook and Twitter. Just search Movie Heaven, Movie Hell. And please leave us a rating and review on iTunes and Stitcher. It all helps. So that just leaves me to uh, thank our guests for coming on. Thank you, John. Thank you. It's been great speaking to you both, Simon and
2: Keith. And I hope uh, I can come back and maybe uh, you know tell you a bit more about what we're doing in the future when
0: we have new developments. Oh,
1: we'd love you to come back. Yeah. Oh, definitely yeah definitely we uh you know we're if you're happy to come on we're happy to have you back because as you probably noticed we've always got stuff to talk about
0: (laughs) absolutely (laughs) and uh it just leaves me to thank you the listener for uh for listening to the podcast and uh please join us again for the next episode of movie heaven movie hell